Hi everybody, this is Kara Fitzgerald. New Frontiers in Functional Medicine is here every month bringing you the best minds in functional medicine. And we would not be able to do this over the years without the generous contributions from our sponsors. Biotics Research, for four, over 40 years, the foundations of biotics research has been innovation and quality. Their goals remain unchanged. Innovative ideas, carefully researched concepts, and product development with advanced analytical and manufacturing techniques. Biotics nutritional products are of superior quality and effectiveness and available exclusively to healthcare professionals. Visit them at bioticsresearch.com. Integrative Therapeutics is focused on inspiring a better lifestyle through better health by providing meticulously formulated nutritional supplements and valuable resources. Integrative Therapeutics promises to enrich your patients and embolden your practice. Welcome to your Integrative Therapeutics. Find them at integrativepro.com. For the past two decades, TA Sciences has been dedicated to exclusively creating research-based, clinically tested wellness products that help address telomere shortening through the science of telomerase activation. As you know, anti-aging has been a huge focus of my research, and I am thrilled to have TA Sciences as a sponsor of New Frontiers. Learn about their products, their research, their outlook on anti-aging at tasciences.com. I wrote my upcoming book, Younger You, Reduce Your Bio-Age and Live Longer, Better, because our research strongly suggests that we don't have to accept the inevitability of disease and unwellness as we age. And perhaps we don't have to accept aging as we age. Take that one in. And further, we achieve this biological age reversal without expensive and risky hormones, injections, or hacks, but with a simple, smartly designed diet and lifestyle program. When we saw our study participants reverse their bioage by over three years as compared to our control group, it was clear to me, even as we move forward with more research, that you needed access to our program now. You can do this in two ways. Our 3YY digital program encompasses what we did in our study in an actionable, all-encompassing, doable structure, and my book, which covers our study, my story, the behind-the-scenes adventures, and a dive into the fascinating world of modifying genetic expression, plus loads of recipes and bioage assessments and an appendix extraordinaire. Both of these drop January 18, 2022. Please see youngeryouprogram.com for details on how to access both. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine, and today is really no exception. I'm here with my friend and colleague, a voice you've heard on New Frontiers before, the terrific Dr. Patrick Hannaway. Patrick is a clinician, a scientist, an educator, a reformer working with the American Board of Integrative Medicine. He's at IFM, he's at Cleveland Clinic, and many, many others. And he's really one of the best minds, not just in functional medicine, but in all medicine. Today, you're in for a real treat, as Dr. Hannaway is a special guest host on New Frontiers, our first guest host. I am thrilled to listen to Patrick. He's offering you a new perspective and insight into what makes functional medicine function. Thanks for listening and welcoming Dr. Patrick Hanaway to New Frontiers. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, we, where we interview the best minds in functional medicine, and today is no exception. I'm your guest host, Dr. Patrick Hanaway, sitting in for Dr. Kara Fitzgerald, and I have the pleasure today to speak with Alex Howard. Alex is the founder and chairman of the Optimal Health Clinic, one of the world's leading integrative medical clinics specializing in fatigue. With a team of full-time, 25 full-time practitioners supporting thousands of patients in over 50 countries, the Optimal Health Clinic team has pioneered working with patients remotely since 2004. Alex has published academic research in publications such as the British Medical Journal, Open, and where I first uh, heard about his work, uh, as well as a, a book, author of a book called Why Me? My Journey from Me to Health and Happiness, and a new book coming out in October uh, called Decode Your Fatigue. We'll hear more about that. 
Alex is the creator of the therapeutic coaching methodology. And since 2020, he's been documenting his therapeutic work with real life patients in his In Therapy with Alex Howard YouTube series. He's put on a series of, of large online conferences, which have been attended by over 350,000 people. You know, so Alex, you're doing great work in the world and really appreciate you being with us here today. Thank you, Patrick. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a subject that's perhaps a little closer to my heart than I would like, but I'm, I'm always really happy to have the chance to talk to people about it. So thank you. Great. Well, why don't we get started there? It's close to your heart. What, what got you started working with fatigue? Well, I think like a lot of people working in these areas, I came in through my own personal experience. I was 15 years old and I, I don't know what a normal childhood is, but I, I had three loves at the time. I loved music, I loved sport, and I loved my, my then girlfriend. And one morning I woke up and it was almost like if there was an energy supply into my body, somebody had pulled that out. And it really catalyzed the first two years of that journey. And I remember actually at the time, the doctor saying to me, you know, it might be six months for you to get back to normal. And when you're 15, 16 years old, six months sounds like someone's giving you a life sentence. And then six months became a year, became two years. And symptoms from severe fatigue at times, uh, bed bound, often housebound, um, muscle aches, headaches, dizziness, and sleep problems, which I think is often seems ironic that you're tired all the time, but you can't, you can't sleep. And after two years of this, I, I reached the point that I wasn't suicidal in as much as I wanted to, to end my life. I just, the thought of continuing the path I was living just seemed so horrific. And I had a conversation with my, um, my uncle who was, was someone that was a bit of a, a hero to me at that time. He had a, a indie record label and I was in this, this quite, I thought great punk rock band. I listened to recordings now. I'm like, <laughs> it's, it's amazing how, how things can, can, can sound different with a little bit of, of, of time. But I had this conversation where he helped me realize that if I wanted the circumstances of my life to change, then I was going to have to be the one to change them. And this catalyzed a five-year healing journey. And in those five years, I read hundreds of books. I saw dozens of practitioners. I became very committed to meditation, yoga, changed my diet numerous times. At one point, not something I recommend, but at one point, I think I was taking 70 supplements a day. I think I had the most expensive feces in, in South Wales. <laughs> I was at university at the time. But I, I just did everything that I believed could help facilitate my recovery there was no one magic answer and even these days you know I'm, I'm a little intolerant to anyone that comes out and says this is the answer to to fatigue because I think it's a complex picture and different things help people in different ways at different stages of the recovery process and I didn't obviously have a map and it was, it was a little bit like trying to navigate from from where I am in London to where you are in, in in the States without a map. And you find sometimes find yourself walking days in completely the wrong direction. And it was enormously frustrating at, at times. But I ultimately was able to find the interventions and the and the approaches that facilitated my recovery. And it was it was a five year process from actively working on on that healing journey. And Along the way, I, I think like a lot of people that, that go through very difficult life experiences, it, it changed me and it, it changed the things that mattered to me in life. You know, I still like sport and I, I, still, I, still, like, I still like loud punk rock music. But the thing that, that really became my life's mission and my life's purpose was to to hopefully help other people in similar situations. And, and that was really the origin of uh, around 18 years ago now, founding the Optimum Health Clinic. And so with the Optimum Health Clinic, what you, what you did was you brought this, what we might call eclectic array 
of, of different kinds of therapeutic approaches, but you began to work with them in creating a map of really how to, how to take those, those interventions and put them together. Maybe you could just talk about the interventions first, you know, maybe categorize them, and then let's talk about how we, how we really focus on you know, creating a map that is um, bespoke, if you will, or personalized yeah. for each of the par uh, participants. Yeah, well, you know, part of it was, I mentioned in my own healing journey, I didn't have the map. Well, when we started the Ultimate Health Clinic, we also didn't have the map. But there were, of course, this was 2003 at the time, there were lots of people out there doing interesting things. The thing was, there weren't many organizations or practitioners that were particularly bringing those different pieces together. And I think one of the talents that I and some of the early people involved in the Optimum Health Clinic had is we, well, firstly, we had a passion and we loved reading and we loved studying different people's work, but also the passion to try to pull these different pieces together and try to make sense of them. And quite quickly in that process, we realized that there are different subtypes of people in the fatigue population. There are different stages of the recovery process. The things like the state that our nervous system in is in is, is really important. And so my background, whilst I was at university, um, I studied psychology at university. And while I was at university, did a lot of training in things like uh, NLP, uh, EFT, hypnotherapy, life coaching, psychotherapy, like particularly looking at brief therapeutic interventions. I, I was particularly at, at that time in my late teens, early 20s, wasn't particularly inspired by the idea of spending years in therapy to make sense of things. But I was interested in ways that you could create significant change in, in, in short periods of time. And so my, with my backgrounds on the yeah, your question. Just, just for the acronym challenged uh, uh, NLP, neuro linguistic programming, <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, EFT, emotional freedom yeah. technique, a couple of yeah. different tools that are available. Just want everyone to know what, what you're referring to. Go ahead. <laughs> yes, thank you. We all get, it's very easy to start using acronyms left, right, and center. So thank you for putting me up on that. Um, the, so that was my background on the psychology side. And then I met uh, a nutritional therapist who, Nutritional therapy had been an important part of my own healing journey. And I recognized that psychology alone was not going to be enough. And I didn't want to fall down this, this, this trap that I'd seen so many people doing of they have their lens and their lens almost over time gets increasingly narrower because you see things the way you see them. Then you get the confirmation bias that you look for the things you look for. And it's a little bit like the way Facebook tends to curate people's Facebook feed, that the stuff that you like and you engage with, you see more of, and you increasingly see less of the stuff that challenges your, your perspective. Right. We call that an echo chamber. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so I, I because of my own experience of seeing dozens of practitioners and being on you know, people will often say that the fatigue population, oh, well, you know, they're, they're not very motivated and, you know, they're quite negative that things aren't going to work. And the thing I always say to people is, well, see what happens if you go to see multiple practitioners that all inspire you with the hope you're going to recover. And then months and years later, you're worse off financially, worse off physically because you haven't made the progress you hoped you're also worse off emotionally. And I don't think the fatigue population is inherently negative. I think they protect themselves from the disappointment of investing too much hope in things that then don't deliver on the promises they're expecting. So I was very cautious to not set up an organization which was recreating, quite honestly, some of the traumas that I'd experienced on my own healing journey. And so having uh, a framework and a methodology which was as broad ranging as possible and I was very inspired particularly in those days and, and still these days by the work of Ken Wilber who's a, a, a very um, well-known American philosopher and his integral theory of pulling together different jigsaw pieces and was really inspired to try and do the same thing for understanding fatigue and so I was working on the psychology side um, there was a nutritional therapist working on the nutrition side, and we really grew the foundation from there. And as we became very quickly, we became hugely in demand, I think, partly because there was a real absence of people doing what we were doing. Um, and, you know, we got 
lots of things wrong. <laughs> we made lots of mistakes. You know, I was in my early 20s and suddenly running a, an organization that had, you know, lots of staff and lots of, you know, complexity that goes with that. And we were enormous and still are enormously passionate about the work that we were doing. And just like we did as an organization, and just like I'd done on my own healing journey with our patients, we learned from mistakes and we learned with them. And we were always as upfront as we could be and said, look, this is what we know. This is what we know that we don't know. And there's lots of things that we don't know that we don't know. And mm -hmm. we just, we learn through the process of doing it. And those maps really have grown out of lots and lots of trial and error. And one of the reasons why I waited as many years as I did to write uh, my new book, Decode Your Fatigue, because I, many times over the years, um, I've reached out to publishers with other books I wanted to write, and they would say, well, we want you to write this book. And I'd say, I don't want to write that book. And the reason why I didn't want to write it was I just felt to pull together all of these different pieces in one book just felt too complicated. There was just that. And, and it actually, the process of doing it has been great. And I'm really proud of the book that's come out of it. But it's these maps are constantly evolving and they're constantly changing. And it's one of my great loves working as a practitioner is the constant learning. And, you know, as, as, as I know that, you know, it's it's challenging when you have patients in front of you where you're doing your absolute best. They're committed and it's not coming together. They're the ones we learn the most from. But it's it, it's still still leaves one with a heavy heart at the end of the day. Yeah. So in that uh, kind of theme and variation, as you're working with individuals, you know, you've talked about how you really are interested in, you know, sequencing the interventions to be able to see, you know, how the, how the pieces fit together. And within that, you know, you've talked about, you know, there's a number of subtypes of fatigue, there's a number of stages of fatigue, there's a number of um, nervous system states that are going on. But uh, in your book, you've, you've kind of coned that down at least on the the theme you know let's say theme and variation on the theme of of two uh, primary maps of fatigue what are they so the first map is the map to decode someone's fatigue like what are the ingredients that tend to come together to create the experience of fatigue the second map is the map that we use towards the recovery process so just to kind of break it down a little bit the map to decode fatigue is genetics plus personality patterns times by the loads on one system. And that is what equals the impact on one's bodily system. So to break that down a little bit more, the research is, and, and actually I quote some of um, Dr. Cara Fitzgerald's research in, in this part of the book, that there is a, a modest amount of genetic um, impact when it comes to fatigue. Obviously, with the emerging work on epigenetics, we recognize that that isn't a guarantee or a life sentence. We can turn on and off, but there is certainly a genetic element. And it's certainly something anecdotally that we see in our patient community that I'm thinking of one particular family where mom and dad and two out of three children have experienced fatigue over the last five years. But there certainly is a genetic element that goes on. But then what we came to realize over time is there are certain personality patterns or types which are more likely to be prone towards fatigue, perhaps versus certain other conditions that one might experience. And I'm mindful of talking primarily to practitioners here, but if there are those affected by fatigue that are listening, I recognize that this is a sensitive point because a lot of people have been told you're, you have fatigue because you're an anxious person or it's all in your mind and I want to be very clear that I'm not suggesting that fatigue is a psychological condition it is a very real physical experience and there are certain energy depleting psychology certain ways of relating to ourselves and the world which become a drain on our system and so just briefly those those personality patterns are the um, helper pattern. This is where we make other people's needs more important than our own. An example might be, we get home from work, our body's telling us we're tired and we need to rest. We get a message from a friend and they're in need and we prioritize their need as being more important than our own. And that's a consistent pattern of, of how we relate to people in the world. Uh, the second is the um, anxiety pattern. This is where we often try to think our way 
to a feeling of safety. We don't feel safe in the world. Our mind and our nervous system speeds up to try and create that sense of safety. Third is the achiever pattern. This is where we define our self-worth by what we do and what we achieve in the world. We're constantly pushing ourselves beyond our edges and our limits. We then have the controller. This is where we feel a sense of safety only when we have control of ourselves and the environment. Then we have the perfectionist, where for us to feel safe, the work we need to do things perfectly. Also, often to feel loved, we need to do things perfectly. So these five personality patterns create a way of being in the world, which is inherently draining. We're constantly putting more demand on our system than it necessarily has the capacity to meet. So we've got the genetic element. We've got the personality patterns, these ways of relating to the world. We then have the loads. These are the different burdens and impacts that might happen to our, our system. One of the analogies that I heard many years ago, in fact, during my own recovery process that really stuck with me is it's like loads on a boat. And it's no one load, which is too much for that boat. But the more loads that you get, sometimes you can have a relatively small final load. And that's the load that actually causes the boat to start to sink. Right, which Those we talk about as a, a sometimes as a trigger within functional medicine, but it was just the last component. So if you if you take care of the trigger, let's say it's some Lyme infection or some mold exposure or some nutritional deficiency, it in and of itself is not sufficient to be able to take care of the problem. Because as soon as you have a little more load in, in some other domain, you're going to have it. One of uh, our mentors, Dr. Sid Baker, you know, called it the tack rule. And he said, like, if, if, if you sit on a tack and you move it, you feel better. But if you sit on three tacks and you remove one, you don't feel like one third better. <laughs> right. You still have pain and suffering. So yeah, um, and in fact, one of the things that I say to, to practitioners is triggers can be red herrings that you can think you've cracked it because you found the trigger. And actually, you found that the final straw that broke the camel's back, if to mix metaphor slightly, mm -hmm. uh, actually, what you need to do is, is find out all the other loads that have become too much for the body in, in the first place. And examples of loads, loads can be environmental loads. They, so they could be toxins in the environment that could be living in a, in a home with mold. Uh, loads can be physical loads. It can be um, you know, your digestive system is just not, not working the way that it needs to, and you're not making energy, and therefore there's a load there. It can be psycho-emotional loads of these personality patterns can mean that we're less well-equipped, but they could be, you know, ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, can be loads that we're carrying in our system. Figuring out these loads is important in as much as we want to understand the, wet, the, the factors that have caused someone to get sick. But again, I think sometimes these loads, we can get over fixated on the things that have happened in the history and not recognize that sometimes the loads have caused, for example, the nervous system to become over overstimulated, become dysregulated. And we've got now this maladaptive stress response in the system. And actually the loads have gone, but the systems learn to respond. And so again, it, it, it's, we can get sometimes the, the value of maps is they simplify things. The danger of maps is they simplify things. Yeah. But, I, but So within that, that maladaptive stress response of, of working with individuals, how are you, how are you focused on working with them, you know, from the psycho-emotional state? Obviously, you're going to be working on, you know, having a good diet that they can eat and, and working with them on their, on their lifestyle factors of physical movement and sleep. Um, but where else are you working on to focus on the, the maladaptive stress response? Yeah, so just, just to, to complete on the second map, because I think it actually speaks really, really importantly to this. So that the map of recovery, we're looking at state, which is the question you just asked, I'll come back to in a moment, that the body, for the body to heal, it has to be in a healing state. Then we've got the stage, there's three, we map three different stages to the recovery process. We then have the sequence of how we put together those interventions. An example might be, that you've got a heavy viral load. So you think that the place to go to start is antivirals. That, that's the logical starting point. 
but actually it might be to, in fact, to, to bring the state piece in, if your body's in a maladaptive stress response, you take the antivirals and actually your system reacts to everything you try to use to, to treat the, to, the, the body because it thinks everything is dangerous. So one of our key learnings over the years, and I think we were fortunate to have a head start in this because we already had a psychology department right at the beginning, whereas I think a lot of functional medicine practitioners start in the in the more physical um, terrain, and then in time, they increasingly realize the importance of addressing some of these other areas. But our realization was that when you suffer from a what could be classified as a medically unexplained illness. Now, obviously, you and I, Patrick, it's not a medically unexplained illness. There's, there's a great deal of explanation, but certainly to the patient and to the traditional medical um, world, you're told, sometimes you're told there's nothing wrong with you, even though you have all these very debilitating severe symptoms, or you're told there's something wrong with you, but there's nothing to be done about it. And, and if I can just be forgiven a, a slight soapbox rant for a moment um and i and I, I i i was told to tone it down a little bit in the book by the publisher because i can't be carried away but it is the highest level of of arrogance to say we can't find anything wrong with you therefore there's nothing wrong with you or we recognize there's something wrong with you but we don't know what it is, therefore no one knows what it is. I mean, if you just pause for a minute and think about those statements, it's an unbelievable level of arrogance because the assumption is that that medical professional knows everything there is to know out there when it comes to a fatigue-related condition. But when you- So when, let me just interject for a moment because I think it's a, it's a critically important point and, and one of even when I'm talking with patients about neuroplasticity and retraining the brain and work right. of, you know, Joe Dispenza or Annie Hopper, you know, they, I see them balking as like, are you telling me this is all in my mind? It's not real. And I'm like, no, 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 not at all. And I'll, I'll relate it to the microbiome and the gut brain microbiome axis. And there's a lot of stuff going on, you know, and, and you can change it. That's the beauty of the of neuroplasticity which is you know what it sounds like you're you're driving towards in that maladaptive stress response and until you have dealt with that you can't actually deal with some of those other physical aspects on the nutritional therapy side of things that that's right and 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 the way to think about it is when you go and see a medical professional and you're so unwell you can't function in your life and you're told either there's nothing wrong with you or we don't know what's wrong with you you're left with this incredibly actually traumatic experience because your mind and your nervous system is going into what's wrong with me why is it wrong with me what do i do about it will i recover you know and and then it just down to very simple things like can i go to the shops this afternoon and buy food or will it make me worse and should i stay home and rest like this so what happens is fatigue patients particularly when they don't have clarity of what's happening find themselves in a, in a perpetual state of stress and anxiety a an, a healthy appropriate nervous system response to not knowing what's wrong and to go into i need to figure this out becomes maladaptive and what we find is patients often end up in their nervous system in exactly the opposite state to what they need to be in to heal. In fact, I, I noticed, Patrick, you did an interview recently on this podcast looking at cell danger response. And I think that's a really helpful framework within which to understand this. Just, just to, my very simple way of, of, of explaining it is that our mitochondria, which are our the kind of powerhouse of, of, of our energy, they have two fundamental functions um, within our body. The first is energy production, and that's what everyone's familiar with and what people talk about. But they have a second function that often people don't realize, which is danger signaling. When there is threat in the environment, the job of our mitochondria is to spread the, the, the warning of that threat around our system. But when our mitochondria go into danger signaling mode, they are deprioritizing energy production. So when we're in a maladaptive stress response, apart from the, the impacts that many practitioners will already be aware of, there's enormous amounts of research around the impact of stress on immune function, normally around students at exam time. But there's also enormous research on the impact of stress on things like wound healing, that if we have a physical wound and we're in a stress state, it takes longer to heal. There's a very direct relationship, which I think Dr. Robert Navio's work speaks very, very beautifully to, sometimes in ways that are far too complex for my simple mind. But my simple way of explaining it is 
when the body goes into a, a maladaptive stress response, it directly impacts upon physical energy production. And so to turn off that nervous system response is often critical, not just to energy production and one's day-to-day -day energy, but also, you know, I remember um, pre the London bombings back in the early um, 2000s, you know, you'd regularly people would leave bags on the underground like someone would leave like i don't know their their tennis clothes in a bag and you used to get these announcements on the underground in in london saying please do not leave bags unannounced because the, the worry was it might be a you know a bomb but no one really paid that much attention and it was just sort of sort of a thing and then the london bombings happened and suddenly anyone saw anyone you know a bag left on the underground the whole network shut down everyone freaked out because our level of threat was massively increased. So suddenly we're, in a sense, overreacting to a bag of, of, of tennis clothes left on, on the underground of the whole of London shutting down because the threat level is raised. The same thing happens in our bodies. When we go into this maladaptive stress response, not only do we start reacting to, to foods and to chemicals and things that are not actually dangerous to us, we can start reacting to the very treatments that are actually necessary to support healing. So we found over the years that, not true for every patient, but for a lot of the patients that we work with, starting with calming their nervous system, sometimes alongside working on, on the nutritional therapy side, and sometimes before, is critical to get the body into a healing state. Let me tell you a little about my friends at Metabolic Maintenance. Since 1984, Metabolic Maintenance has earned an incredibly loyal customer base by producing pure, excipient-free, professional quality supplements and working closely with physicians and nutrition experts like ours, broadening their catalog and refining research-based formulas to best support a variety of health needs. Their stellar reputation extends to the popular nutraceuticals MethylPro. Distributed by Metabolic Maintenance, MethylPro offers superior L-methylfolate products in the widest dosing options available. Research shows L-methylfolate supports cognitive function, healthy neurotransmitter production, and balanced mood. Both MethylPro and Metabolic Maintenance products can now be delivered together, straight to your door, no prescription necessary. For my listeners, please use code KF21 and receive 20% off online purchases at metabolicmaintenance.com. Thank you for listening and supporting New Frontiers. So I want to, uh, a couple things. One is, you know, talking about uh, Robert Nabiao's work on cell danger response, you know, we're going to put that in the show notes and we'll, you know, have a highlight uh, of his work and uh, the importance of that it's great uh, um, note there. I, I love how you talk about the, the differential of the del cell danger response versus energy production and the, uh, the tube metaphor, uh, actually on a, on a very personal level in 2009, uh, we were on the tube and we got caught in one of those and it separated my wife and I from our two teenage sons, you know, oh, wow. where, and, and they didn't have cell phones or know where we were staying in London. So like the trauma of that kind of uh, event, it's a great metaphor for me because like that's still felt. Um, yeah. 12 years later yeah. in terms of like, how could you leave us there? And, uh, and I think that's what happens in the system. And it's a, you know, that maladaptive stress response. So therapeutically, where are you going to help with that, that maladaptive stress response? Yeah. So it's, 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 it sounds like a simple question and it is, but there are so many. Often no, I know there's not an easy answer. So, you know, I, I have a, um, I have a program called the Reset Program, which is a, a 12 week in-depth uh, pro online program that we do with people that we try to come at it from a few different perspectives, because for some people, it's as simple as learning a practice like meditation and just learning to be more present and more connected in the moment. And I'm a great advocate of, of meditation. And I think for a lot of people, it's incredibly helpful. But what can happen is Firstly, there can be so much trauma in the body that as soon as one comes into the body, it actually causes a higher stress response. For other people, what can happen is you calm the system down whilst they're meditating. As soon as they stop, the body goes straight back in to the maladaptive stress response. So we're really looking at what are the thought patterns that someone's being conditioned to think 
which are consistently sending those messages to the nervous system to activate it. Example might be that every time someone notices that they have a particular symptom, their brain goes into, why have I got the symptom? What caused it? What do I do about it? Another example might be that every time someone gets invited to go and do something, they immediately start to think about what if they crash? What might... So there's, there's triggers and patterns that we've got. And often these are unconscious initially. When I say unconscious, mm -hmm. what I really mean is things that are not currently in our conscious awareness. It's not some deep, dark, mystical thing that, that you know, it's just we need to bring awareness to those thought patterns. Blinders. Now, yeah. And again, for some people, that's enough. We recognize those patterns. And I often say, if you can see it, you don't have to be it. The more awareness we have of the pattern, the awareness alone is sometimes enough to change the pattern. That said, for often these patterns are very well entrenched. You mentioned neuroplasticity earlier. We literally get our, our nervous system wired to have certain responses and awareness alone. People sometimes say to me, Alex, I'm seeing it and I'm still being it. So it's right. having then the strategies and the techniques to, to rewire those patterns. And there's different people's work that have been developing over the years. You mentioned Annie Hopper, um, there's Ashok Gupta. Um, mm -hmm. We've all been doing stuff, you know, I guess for nearly 20 years. And I think coming at the same uh, piece from slightly different angles. And I think all using a version of a stop process, a way of recognizing patterns and often foundations in neurolinguistic programming of being able to catch patterns and stop them and then reshift the state in the system. The other piece which is um, I found to be particularly important and it's something that a number of people that have been through some other programs out there have said that's been an important distinction for them in the way that we work with this in the reset program is if we just recognize the patterns and we stop them and we rewire the focus, it's helpful to a point, but often the traumas we've experienced and the anxiety is in our body. And for our body to heal, we also have to be in our body. And so I have a very strong emphasis towards an embodied focus of meditation around coming out of our mind. And as we come into the body, often then what we're doing is we're working with the underlying emotions. As we come into the body, we start to feel the unprocessed sadness or anger or grief. And often the reason why people have got so far into their minds and into their nervous system has been to escape underlying issues that have not been dealt with and processed. I talk about a safety loop where we feel unsafe in our body. Our mind speeds up to try and protect us we then feel even more unsafe. So it speeds up even further. Right. The so body the, keeps the score. Exactly. Exactly. That's what Vanderkolk's a fantastic book on the, on the subjects. And ultimately, we have to, you know, another way I, I phrase it, you can't heal what you don't feel. So we have to feel and metabolize and process the underlying emotions, I find, to get a really lasting shift in the nervous system. Otherwise, what happens is that people are using these, these strategies and tools to reset their system for years, whereas actually they should be used uh, diligently for a period of time, and then there should be a stabilized reset of the system. When which that, focuses you know, on the emotional feeling process to occur, which really isn't part of most um, healthcare interventions at all. Right, exactly. And it's often also not a part of a lot of the psychological interventions that are very focused on the cognitive level, which I think is very important. But that kind of goes back to my point that you asked a simple question that I've given you quite an in-depth answer to, but you need to work on calming the system with practices like meditation, breathing, whatever that may be. We have to work on a cognitive level with the patterns of thinking, but I find we also have to work on an emotional level. And often it's in that sequence. And again, sequencing can be important, if we try to work on the emotions without the cognitive strategies, people run so many patterns around the emotions that they feel overwhelmed in that process.
And then in that process, you talked about the embodied um, focus of being able to do that. Does that then lead to specific kinds of um, therapeutic approaches like somatic experiencing, or do you bring it into um, yoga and Tai Chi and Qigong as ways to be able to begin to feel and embody um, the movement of energy? Yeah. So I really encourage people to have some kind of movement practice. Um, I'm not overly prescriptive on that because I find that different things tend to resonate and work for different people. Mm -hmm. So some people, I'm someone that's really loved yoga over the years and, and other people that just doesn't land for them. But if you ask them to take up swimming and they've got the physical energy to do so, that's the thing that gets them in their body. But some mm -hmm. sort of movement is important. And in answer to your question, yes, so I, I don't tend to use the phrase somatic experiencing because I'm mindful that's very much Peter Levine's work and I'm not trained as a somatic experiencing practitioner, mm -hmm. but I have a very strong emphasis on the importance of coming into the body. And in a sense, I see emotional processing and, met and metabolizing a lot like the digesting of food. Like there's, there's a, the body has its own natural capacity towards it, but we have to get out of its way. Like if you're, if you're, having a healthy working digestive system, the first thing you do is you chew on the food. And if you don't chew on the food properly, you're not releasing some of the enzymes that you need. You're swallowing food that your stomach's got to work much harder than to, to break down. So we chew and emotionally that means talking about things. That means journaling, that means reflecting on things. Like there's a initial breaking down and metabolizing. But then at some point you have to swallow, you have to let go. You can't just be in control of it. So that means starting to come more into the body. Then in the, the stomach's job is to break down the food further and to release, you know, acids and digestive enzymes. That's part of the process of, as you feel something, you start to break it down a bit more. And, and I, an experience of grief that feels, for example, totally overwhelming starts to feel a bit more like smaller pieces and mm -hmm. a bit more manageable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the, um, you know, moving, you're, you're focusing kind of on the relationship between the metaphysical and the physical. And Gurdjieff talks about that mm -hmm. in terms of, of where there are different symptoms that may em emerge in digestion and how that may relate to, you know, the inability to actually be able to chew, to digest, to break down, to begin to absorb. I, am I ready to receive what is being given to me and seeing how that manifests in in, in a huge array of gut dysfunction that then manifests itself as alterations in the microbiome, you know, that then has this feedback loop. So I want to just talk for a little bit or hear a little bit about, you know, the, the food focus on the nutritional therapy, which I assume is sort of running in parallel yeah. with, with what you're doing here. So speak a little bit more that you're not a nutritional therapist, you're, you're psychologist, but uh, speak a little bit more about the nutritional yeah. therapy side of things for our, for our practitioners out there sure so having a team of you know 25 practitioners i i get the great pleasure of often feeling like the most stupid person in the room we're talking about a lot of this stuff but i i think some points that i think are worth making that i think will be valuable firstly we have a very strong emphasis on biochemical individuality the recognition that what the diet that works for one person definitively may be the worst possible diet for another person. And this was particularly uh, challenging with the book, actually, because the publisher was like, well, what's the diet for recovery from fatigue? And I was like, I can't write that book. And no one should try and write that book, because the truth is different things work for different people. That said, we have a strong emphasis towards the obvious things that practitioners will be familiar with, reducing things like um, uh, sugar, complex carbohydrates, um, you know, the usual toxins and processed you know, foods. You know, yeah. So the obvious stuff is, is a sort of a obvious foundation. We also have, a, for the majority of people, a relatively strong emphasis towards a, a good amount of quality animal, um, obviously organic where possible protein. Um, we find that a lot of people have um, issues with fermenting gut. And so being sensitive to uh, foods around that we do a lot of we have a strong focus towards digestive function as a whole i mean it's worth saying that we like a, like a lot of practitioners have a systems approach so we look at the digestive system as a system and that for many people is an important piece 
We also then look at the endocrine hormone system. And again, for a lot of people, that can be an important piece. Again, the immune side of it. And obviously there's been a growing interest in recent years around uh, mold, Lyme, co-infections. And I think that it's great to see that evolving. I think I, I have a, a, a level of caution and concern around some of the level of invasiveness and intensity of some of those protocols and approaches we seem to be you know one of the great benefits that we have when you have a very large patient community at any one time we have well over a thousand patients in active treatment with the practitioner team at the clinic and so you you you'd be relative you could be pretty stupid and still see patterns and still see the sort of themes in, in terms of, of, of what of what's going on and it's what i've noticed over the years is certain things come into vogue come into fashion and people jump on bandwagons and and often yeah SIBO, like, candida ebv exactly, pick, pick exactly. Yeah. And, I, and i was a casualty of, of the of the raging candida focus in the in the 90s and yeah and and you know still these days have gut uh issues related to some of the the intensity of some of the protocols and yeah. we, don't know, we don't know what we were doing back in those days so, and which doesn't mean that for some subset of people that becomes a critical factor to be able to totally, do but we've totally. got to be aware and we can't try to take a one-size-fits-all approach you know when we see that even when someone has some indication of candidal imbalance we don't necessarily want to hit them super hard right away because their system may not be ready to handle it so I think that, we're that, that's right. And, I, you know, I often get accused of, of being of being boring when it comes to things because I'm just so slow to get on the bandwagon. It's not because I'm not watching everyone else and not because I'm not super interested. I just as soon as someone goes, I said it earlier, as soon as someone goes down the path of everyone that has chronic fatigue has Lyme or everyone that has chronic fatigue has SIBO. I just I, I, it, just seen too many people yep. for too many years. But you're absolutely right. When someone does have Lyme or someone does have SIBO or Candida or whatever the, 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 the focus is, until you deal with that specific piece, you are rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. And so you need to have that clarity. And that's, again, where the best practitioners are the ones that have that insane curiosity that they're constantly learning and they're constantly discovering more. And that's where for one patient, they can go deep on a SIBO protocol not necessarily that's going to be the only piece, but it's going to be an important piece for another patient with the same set of sim presenting symptoms. They're going to recognize that actually it's a completely different path they need to go down. But I think it it brings us back to a, an important point when I was talking about the, the second map of state plus stages time sequence that the sequencing of the intervention is so important. So to take the SIBO example, you can have someone that's, that's got SIBO and you can jump straight in with rifaximin, neomycin. You can do a, a strong um, anti, um, antimicrobial. Uh, or antimicrobial or antibacterial protocol. Mm -hmm. And for some people that can work really well, but two, three months later, all the symptoms resurface. Yep. And you end up doing, you know, 10 rounds of, of antimicrobials or anti um, uh, fungals or whatever. And you're still not actually dealing with the underlying issue that's going on. Right. One would hope that that once you start that second round of treatment, you're actually looking for curiously, what am I missing here uh, that's underneath? That is a driver. And, and before we uh, got on, we talked uh, briefly about, you know, different kinds of ways of assessing people. And you spoke to, you know, eloquently about the importance of, of clinical experience, how it feels to be with someone. Someone. And I'd, I'd love for you to share a little bit more of that, because I, I feel that, uh, you know, from you, you have the map, but then there's the individual therapeutic relationship that helps you to really understand how to apply the map. That's where the personalization comes into place. And that's what even your research said, hey, we're not treating everyone exactly the same. Here's the set of tools we're using, but we're sequencing it differently. And that all begins with the, you know, the initial engagement and the therapeutic intervention. So can you speak a little bit yeah. more about that? Yeah. And you know, it's, it's a really good point because the this way of doing things is the only way 
that I know to do things that's effective. And it's been the bane of my life, particularly the last five years, because on the back of the BMJ Open study that, that you mentioned, Patrick, we uh, decided, well, obviously the next step is to do a full randomized controlled trial with a, a national health service NHS patients in the UK. So we started the process of getting ethics approval to work with NHS patients using our approach. The problem is our approach is not someone has this symptom, you give this supplement. Our approach is this much more nuanced and this much more uh, clinically um, clinical experience based approach. So fast forward five miserable years to get NHS ethics to do this research that we finally got granted um, last year. But, you know, the, the ultimately, yes, the map is important, but the map is always evolving and changing. I find, and it's it's incredibly hard to train, and more recent years, we've got better at hiring practitioners that already have this instinct. It's almost one of the most important thing that I, things that we look for in hiring people is the ability to use your own curiosity, your own capacity to map and to see patterns and, and to, to pull things together. It's also not just an intellectual capacity. And it, it, again, it's sometimes hard to find the right words, but it's an intuitive, instinctive. When you're with someone, sometimes you just get an instinct that oh, this feels like this other person that I, I sat with maybe five, 10 years ago, and I'm not quite sure why. And then it's that sometimes it's that marriage of, 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 inte of the intellectual prowess to make sense of the data and the research and to be able to go deep on that with one's own instinct, with also one's own clinical um, capacity to build connection and rapport and trust with patients as well. Because you can be the best practitioner intellectually in the world, but if you can't inspire patients and you can't get there. Um, you can't get the compliance that you need for people to sometimes make dramatic changes in their lives, you're still not ultimately going to be effective. And I think it's very easy for practitioners to become often because they feel they it's a it's a way of covering up the, the feeling I think a lot of practitioners feel in their early years which is this kind of imposter syndrome that I'm not a medical doctor and I've only got this nutritional therapy qualification so they very closely follow protocols and I think sometimes over depend on lab results and I think that's okay that that's sometimes a developmental stage that I think people often have to go through but ultimately the the best work comes when we move beyond that stage and we're and I think it's really important to be open and honest with patients we're always incredibly transparent about I think I was saying to you before we started recording of what what we do know what we know we don't know and there's also a load of stuff that we don't know that we don't know exactly. but when you're working with people that have tried many things over many years that haven't worked they actually appreciate the honesty and you're then learning from their feedback but also their body's feedback and i think that becomes an incredibly important compass along the way yeah that's that's beautifully said um you know i i you know was writing down and i've talked with people about you know having you know curiosity and compassion connection with the person and then the courage to be vulnerable in the process and that's exactly what you're speaking about there to be able to to move through and be able to listen to well what is the right answer for this individual you know but you've done a, a wonderful job of you know creating these maps of, of ways to think about it and look at it you know so that it can ground the practitioners who are out there in the approach that you're taking to be able to to deal with fatigue i really really appreciate this conversation so um, you know, some practical things that people can start with. Yeah, look, I think for people that are listening to this who are on the healing journey, I think the first thing I would say is that if you feel alone, you feel misunderstood, you feel that no one has the answers, take solace in the fact you are not alone in feeling that way. Like you're not alone in feeling alone on, on, on the healing path. And there are answers that are out there. And there are there is a whole uh, movement of people and many of those people listening to podcasts like this, people that have trained with people like yourself, Patrick, people that are deeply passionate about understanding these conditions and 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 making the medically unexplained absolutely explained. And so really, the first thing I would say is 
You need to find those people and you need to get clarity. The reason why I called the book Decode Your Fatigue and not, you know, fix your fatigue or, or whatever else is, I, I think you can't fix the problem till you decode what's wrong. And taking the time to figure that out, I think is hugely important. So you need the clarity. There's a lot that people can do with themselves. And one of the things that I was really excited to do with the book that I mentioned earlier, the sort of place of overwhelm, I can't fit it all in one book. But I said to the publisher, okay, I'll do the book, but I want to do a, a free companion course with the book where I can do a load of other stuff. So there's a companion, free companion course with the book that also has um, interviews of the people whose case studies are in the book. So you hear from it themselves. There's recipes, there's a downloadable uh, meditation for when I talk about meditation in the book. So it's having the clarity and it's having the resources. We can do a lot with ourselves and you often need to build your team. Like who are the practitioners that understand these conditions and are working with them day in, day out? And often you need a specialist, not a generalist. You need someone that's not seeing one or two fatigue patients a year, but someone that's seeing them on a regular basis, because that's what brings the clarity to really be able to, to, to make sense of it. And obviously, I'm, I'm evangelical about the team we have at the Optimum Health Clinic, but there are many great practitioners that are out there. And I, I was very careful in the book to not make it a sales pitch for everyone has to come to the Optimum Health Clinic. I, I am... I feel deeply privileged to be part of such an incredible community of people doing fantastic work. And one of my great joys is on the conferences that every year I interview over a hundred different people on for the fatigue super conference and the trauma super conference. And I love learning from other people. So I'm also whoever the team is for you. And I, I do do a chapter in the book actually on how to find the right people and how to manage that process with them but you need to build the team of people that are really going to be able to help you along the way. Um, and then I would say, you know, we've spoken quite a lot in this interview around the importance of calming the nervous system. That's a critical piece. Often meditation's a good start. It's not the whole piece, but it's a good start. Um, we touched on digestion. Um, often that's a really, as often quick wins I find for people, we, we find on the digestion side, some of the more, complicated areas like um, Lyme, mold, co-infections can be a, any way you're going to need to get the fundamentals in place. So starting with the fundamentals is a good place to start. Right. And that's where we see the best benefits of, of some of those specialized treatments is after the people have, uh, have healed the gut and got on a good diet that they can actually work with. And as you said, uh, you know, work to reset the whole um, mental process that's going on, the nervous system dysfunction and dysautonomia. So, you know, the, the book, uh, Decode Your Fatigue, a clinically proven 12-step plan to increase your energy, heal your body, and transform your life. It's going to be available in October. Is that right? Uh, it's on pre-order now. Um, it's in bookshops, um, certainly all over America, UK, Australia, New Zealand. So most places, it's obviously on all the places like Amazon. Um, if people want to find out more, actually, the best thing to do is to go to the book website, which is decodeyourfatigue.com. Uh, if you go there, you can download uh, a free chapter. Um, you can see um, there's a, a whole bunch of, of information about the book. Um, it's no book has all the answers. <laughs> and again, I'm always nervous of people that come out there and go, this is the only book that you need. To, to, but I think this book has a lot of answers and I've taken great care to make those answers accessible and easily actionable. So um, yeah, Wonderful. I really want to encourage people to, to, to explore. Wonderful. Well, I'm certainly going to be picking up a copy and sharing it with, uh, you know, some of my patients. In fact, I, I have one or two patients. I'm thinking that I may need to refer over to your reset program right now because, you know, not uh, any one individual is the right person for everybody. And, you know, being able to expand the network of other practitioners who can help to support us in the process, that is something that, uh, that I look to and really appreciate your participation in the podcast and in the field of functional medicine and working with these patients. Now, some of the, uh, the, the, books, the publications, um, uh, the people we've talked about will be in the show notes. Uh, we encourage you to uh, take a look afterwards uh, to see the links that will be there uh, to help connect you to some of these tools and perspectives uh, that Alex Howard has brought to us today. 
want to just give you a big shout out and thank you for the work that you're doing in the world to, you know, help people with fatigue. And, you know, we both know and recognize that these kinds of things are applicable beyond fatigue as well. Um, but, uh, you know, in your patients with fatigue is a beautiful place to start. Thank you so much. Anything you want to say in closing, Alex? No, thank you, Patrick. It's, it's a real pleasure to be here. Um, and I really appreciate the, the conversation and having the chance to, to speak to it. So thank you. Great. Have a great day. As always, thank you for listening to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where our sponsors help bring the very best minds in functional medicine. And today is no exception. Not everyone can be a sponsor on my platform. And I so appreciate the good work the relentless research, and the generous support from my friends at Biotics, TA Sciences, and Integrative Therapeutics. These are brands I know and trust in my own clinic and can confidently recommend them to you. Visit them at bioticsresearch.com, tasciences.com, and integrativepro.com, and please tell them you learned about them on New Frontiers. If it's not too much to ask, I would appreciate a thumbs up and a kind review wherever you're listening to New Frontiers. Thanks.